Welcome to the Awakening Church Podcast. We exist to awaken this generation to new life in Christ. Thanks for tuning in. To find out more, go to awakeningchurch.com. I want you to think and to picture an escalator. Think about an escalator. Maybe you've been into a, in a mall or you're at the airport and you see an escalator. Picture it. Now I want you to picture trying to describe that invention to someone who has never seen it before. Because you might not imagine, but escalators are unknown to millions of people across the earth. People live in all types of societies that don't have this invention, the escalator. Imagine yourself talking to someone who's in the third world, who has grown up their entire life with less economic means, and trying to tell them what an escalator is and does. You might be fielding such questions as this. Why? (laughs) Why do you need that? And you go, we don't want to walk? That's kind of the harsh truth, isn't it? it not, right? Like, the harsh truth is that the escalator was invented not because it had to be, but because it could be invented. It was invented out of a level of opulence to where we didn't want to take the stairs, so let's invent something that carries me up there. I had a big lunch. Just want to be carried up those stairs. Let's work for years, spend dollars upon dollars, hour upon hour to develop something that lifts me from here to there. Because it's just too much. It's too much. Yeah. Inventions in America and in privileged societies tend to not always come out of necessity, but sometimes they come out of just, hey, we can do this. Quite simply, we can invent things, therefore we do invent things, but here's the thing. The cost of these inventions leaves us to all of a sudden have a new question we have to ask ourselves and a new choice we have to make every time we're at the airport or every time we're at the mall, and you know this decision you have to make, stairs or escalator. We should probably take the stairs. I I need to lose a couple. Got to get my steps in, you know? But that's a new choice that's in our culture. That's not a choice in other cultures. Do you see? Technology breeds a level of choice making we never had before the technology arrived. Needless inventions often offer us choices we never asked to have. Like this. Should we fly? Like this. I I live in Oregon. Should we fly to Oregon or should we drive to Oregon? Do I take an Uber or do I walk? Do I text or do I call? Do I tweet it or do I post it on Instagram? Do I post it as a story or as an actual post? (laughs) Do I eat my leftovers or do I order Postmates? Wait, Postmates or DoorDash? Heat something in a cage of radiation or make something fresh? (laughs) Tap water or buy the purifier? Paper or plastic? Trick question, both are a sin in California. All of these choices you and I never asked for, and yet we live in a world that we have to make them all the time. You see, technology affords us a luxury of choices. It begins with a stair versus an escalator, but it now involves a cascading level of choices we never wanted to make. And more seriously, now because of innovation, we put our children through even more choices. Our children are now offered more levels of college education than they ever asked for. A choice of sports and commitments to such sports that we've never had when we were growing up. Life has simply gotten more complicated because it seems that the more advanced we get, the more anxious we become. 
because all of these choices breed up a level of anxiety. As silly as some of those examples are, your life is more complicated than anyone else's life in the history of the world because of needless inventions and technologies that have surrounded our lives. We now live in a world of anxiety because of our opulence and our level of advancement. You see, the complexity of American life bred the anxiety in American life. Life is just so complicated. Do you guys watch The Good Place? Ever seen this show? Good Place. It's a pretty solid show. Ted Danson, greatest TV actor in history, let's be honest. If I look like him at his age, I've won, okay? <laughs> you don't need to know much context for this show, but there's this quote from The Good Place that I love that explains exactly what I'm talking about. The character Michael, played by Ted Danson, says this, life now is so complicated, it is impossible for anyone to be good enough for The Good Place. These days, just buying a tomato at the grocery store means you're unwittingly supporting toxic pesticides, exploiting labor, contributing to global warming. Humans think they're making one choice, but they're actually making dozens of choices they don't even know they're making. You feel the anxiety boiling? This is the life we live, this is the world we live in. I, I said it before, the complexity of American life bred the anxiety in American life. This anxiety problem is uniquely American. Did you know that when Americans were studied asking on a day-to-day -day basis, do you just have a relatively good day? Our rate is nearly half as low as those in third world countries. That actually, um, they studied, the, for example, Nigeria. Nigeria has a level of 65% of people feel like they have a relatively good day in Nigeria. In America, it's more like 30 to 25%. Because life is so complicated, it's bred to us in anxiety, but it's come directly out of the world we live in. Yes, that's why we're starting this new series, Anxious, but we're actually continuing our study of the Sermon on the Mount. And so if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 6. We've been slowly working through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is Jesus' greatest teachings, and today we get to this new section. Next week, we're going to talk a lot more directly about anxiety, about worrying for the future, and Jesus telling us to not worry about the future. But this week, we're going to get a... We're going to get a, a, one perspective on anxiety, one angle on anxiety. And Jesus says this in Matthew 6, verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light, that is, uh, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? 24, his summary right here. No one, not, nobody in this room, nobody on the earth can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There is something in our service to money and our service of possessions and our service of ourselves that has bred a level of anxiety in this culture that Jesus is trying to get us away from. He uses three metaphors that we'll discuss today. Two treasures, two eyes, and two masters. The first metaphor, he uses a metaphor of two treasures. Now, when you think of treasure, you probably think of Johnny Depp, but that's not the kind of treasure he's talking about here. 
Instead, he's talking about the things that we value and the way that we show our value. Very simply, for us to think about it the way that Jesus and his disciples might have thought about it back then, I want you to think about your treasure as your time and your money. The things that reveal the very things that you value. Finite resources that point to things that you value. It's your time and your money. That is what treasure is. And a key question Jesus is asking in this idea of two treasures, the key question is this, where do I give my time and my money? Where do I give my time? How do I spend it? And where do I give my money? How do I spend that? Do you notice the same metaphor for money and time are the same thing? We spend it, we give it. Why? Because they're finite resources. Jesus contrasts two different kinds of treasures, earthly treasures and heavenly treasures. Earthly, he said, moth and rust destroy and thieves break in and steal. Meaning, the earthly treasures are corruptible, moths and rust destroy, and they're also temporary, thieves break in and steal. They can leave you. They can get out of your life easily. Earthly treasures are both corruptible and temporary. And Jesus says, don't lay up treasures that are temporary and corruptible. It's foolishness. And all of us in America know this intellectually, but because we swim in consumerism and materialism, it's nearly impossible for us to understand. But Jesus says, beware of this. Have you ever had this experience? I remember the first time I really understood how corruptible and temporary earthly goods are. I bought the first iPod. Some of you work for Apple, and you tricked me to do this. It was five gigabytes. You told me through a commercial that I could store 1,000 songs on my phone. I was pumped. I was super into music. I saved up the, I believe, $400 retail price it was at for the brick. I remember, I, guys, I like was mowing lawns. I was doing whatever I could. I was helping my dad in any way I could so I could get $400. I spent it on this iPod, and it was my prized possession. I remember going to like this Catholic church camp or something when I was growing up at Catholic school, and um, I remember taking the iPod with me and not my disc man. Yeah and not the binder of CDs that I was filing through. And I was like, all I have to do is bring this. And I packed it in pillows to protect it so that it wouldn't corrupt, so that moths would not eat and destroy it or a thief would not break in and steal. It was so important to me. Flash forward five years in 2006, I'm wandering around my neighborhood and I'm in a garage sale and I approach this garage sale and I see next to a stack of VHS tapes my iPod with an orange sticker on it that says $5. In five years, did you watch the value? It changed in five years, and now it's all the faster, is it not? Now it's all the faster. There is nothing that you or I own right now that will not be in a dumpster in less than 100 years. Everything you and I own, from cars to cups, will be irrelevant at best and trash at worst in under a century. Everything you think is worth it or important that you own that is a material possession will be garbage in a hundred years. Very few of the things that you possess will last beyond that. And that's why Jesus says, we spend all this time and all this money working for what? Future garbage. You just got the garbage earlier. It's true though, right? Jesus says this in Luke 12, 15. Beware, he says. 
Guard against every kind of greed. There's multiple kinds. You can be greedy for something that costs $2 and be greedy for something that costs two grand. There's all sorts of greed, and greed sneaks in to be that I deserve this. He says, life is not measured by how much you own. He says, instead of the earthly treasures, store up treasures in heaven. He says, moths and rust don't destroy these things, and thieves don't break in to steal these things. So, while earthly treasures are, in, are uh, corruptible, and they are temporary, the heavenly treasures are incorruptible and eternal. They last forever. Could it be that we need to start asking questions like this? Where can I put my treasure, my time and my money, into something that will outlast me? How can I spend my time and my money in such a way that the impact of my spending will will outlive me? It's a great question for Christians and non-Christians to ask. This is the teaching of Jesus that will lead you into all life. This is why the connecting phrase Jesus has between section one and section two, his two metaphors, he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Where is your time and your money? That's what you care about. Where are you putting your time and your money? That is where your heart is. And a lot of us want to believe our heart is in a different place, but Jesus says, do a very simple and alarming audit of your life. And just look at your calendar and your bank account. Because our hearts lie, but math doesn't. And the math of your calendar and the math of your bank account will expose what you truly care about. And one of the hardest but best things I have done is over a season of time, always look at my bank account and my calendar and understand, am I pouring it into the things, the time and my money? Am I pouring these things into things that will outlast me? Obviously, just life in America requires we have to spend a lot on stuff that will just, we will outlive. I understand that. But it's important for us to counteract a level of materialism with a level of gospel-centered thinking. It makes us think the way that Jesus would want us to think. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You might say, I care about the church. I care about the things of God. But where do you spend your money? If you care about the church and you care about the things of God, there's a way that you can spend your time and your money to encourage those things, to build into those things. You you might say, I care about the poor, but you don't spend any time with poor people and you don't give money to causes who help the poor. And so the question before us is very harrowing, and it is this, do we really care about those things? You see, Dallas Willard has a great quote about time. He says, time is never found, it is made We always say we'll find the time to do the things we care about, but the truth is we don't. We always make time for the things we care about. It's just mostly we care about money more than anything else because that's the system in which we've been bred as Americans or as new Americans. Wherever you're at, the culture that we get in, we can get swept into it so quickly, especially in the Silicon Valley. I believe anxiety can be diminished by freely giving your time and money to things that outlast you. I watch it happen here at Awakening all the time. When people get engaged to serve or they start becoming generous, their peace in their life starts to well up. 
They start to become people not of anxiety but of peace because they don't view their money as theirs. They don't view their time as theirs. It's all borrowed from a heavenly place and they're storing up the heavenly treasures and all of a sudden the anxieties in their life start to diminish because they're giving it away. The second metaphor Jesus uses is of two eyes. Two treasures, his next metaphor being of two eyes. And the key question Jesus is going to ask here is if in the first one he was like, where are you giving your time and your money? The second key question is, where do I give my attention? Where am I pointing my eyes? And Jesus says there's the unhealthy and the healthy eye. In Jesus' day, eyes were the way you saw the real person and their intentions. Likewise, in today, right, like in America, we say, look me in the eye. Why do we say, look me in the eye? Well, it could be one of two things, right? It could be two ways. I could tell you, look me in the eye, when I'm trying to tell you something. (laughs) We say this to our kids, look me in the eye. (laughs) Don't talk. (laughs) Look me in the eye. Clean your room, right? Or it could be from me to you or from you to me. If I think you're lying to me, I go, look me in the eye, right? (laughs) My mom would always do that to me. She'd get me, you know? (laughs) Look me in the eye and tell me you were home when you said you'd be home. What? I got a lot of things to look at in this room all of a sudden. Wow, look at this. This is fascinating. Yeah, okay. Yeah, all of a sudden, we, right? That's where we see. And Jesus says, your eyes and where you give your attention shows what you value. Where you place your attention reveals who you are. What you direct your gaze to will either increase your anxiety or dispel it. Right? We've all had this happen. The question is, what are you paying attention to? Very commonly, we're constantly paying attention and directing our gaze towards our devices, right? Scrolling. You know, there's a season in my life where I struggled sleeping. And uh, I was like waking up in the middle of the night or I couldn't go to sleep. And I thought it was work stuff. Ministry can be stressful. And my wife is um, a doctor. She's very smart. And she said, uh, well, what are you doing before you go to bed? And I said, mostly just scrolling, because I can't lie to her. I'm like, I'm on my phone. She said, you know, actually, there's like science behind this that says if you're scrolling before bed, you're just not going to sleep well if you're staring at a screen. Um, And I was like, okay, you're smart. Okay, like, yes, but it was simple. I was directing my attention to something that was increasing my anxiety. What are you directing your gaze to? Sometimes we're directing our gaze so much to ourselves, We're so insular, we're thinking constantly, how are people viewing me? And what do people think of me? All of us struggle with this. I struggle with this all the time. I'm constantly filled with anxiety when my gaze is directed towards myself. But Jesus, his question hangs over it. Where is your treasure? Where is your attention? If your attention is on yourself and on earthly things, you won't be storing up heavenly treasure. One of the best disciplines as a Christian is to have our gaze focused on God and neighbor. Jesus says this is the greatest command, to love, your God, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, to love your neighbor. That we actually should have the gaze towards God and the gaze towards neighbor before we put our attention on ourselves. It's so healing. It's so healing to be involved in the lives of others and the concerns of others to be involved in the lives of others and to be involved. Do you know that's what you're doing when you worship, by the way? Can I just encourage us in worship? Worship is not sing time. 
Worship is not time to sit and sing along and be nice. Worship is time to direct your attention to the eternal. That's why you gotta be on church on time. That's why you gotta be to ch- stay to church all the way through because worship is that important for you. As a human being, you gotta get out of yourself. That's what I look forward to in worship. I go, yes, another Sunday where I get to get out of myself for a little bit, right? I'm anxious about the sermon. I'm anxious about what I need to do on Sunday. But worship gives me the opportunity, affords me the privilege of directing my attention to the heavens. That's what we have to do to live the life Jesus is asking us. This is where the ways I see our anxiety boiling up, in our time and our money and in our attention, And what would happen is if we pushed time, attention, and money towards the things that will outlast us, to the things of God, your life will be transformed. And that's where Jesus concludes with this verse in verse 24. He gives the metaphor of two masters. He says, no no one can serve two masters. It's impossible. And when I think about verse 24, when Jesus says, no one can serve two masters, he'll be devoted to one or despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I think about my life. (laughs) I think about being an American. I think if verse 24 grew like a seed planted in the hearts and lives of American Christians, it would transform the church. It would transform the workplaces. It would transform our families if we didn't serve God and money, if we didn't have a foot here and a foot there and try to straddle this world of like, I want to be in America and I want to be in a materialist and I want to consume things and I want to follow Jesus. I think right there, trying to straddle these worlds, which Jesus said you never could do in the first place, is where the anxiety is coming from. I think it's coming from this area of trying to understand who will we serve. The key question is, where do I give my devotion? Where do I give my devotion? When Jesus says you cannot serve God in money, some of your Bibles will have a footnote and it'll say, or possessions, or your translation might say possessions. It's because Jesus is using a Greek word here that's a transliteration of the Aramaic word mammon. Mammon meant your stuff. That's actually probably the best way I could describe that word. It has a ton of Old Testament beautiful implications to it that we don't have time to get into at the Sunday service. But mammon was about the things in your life that surrounded you, the material things that surround your life, the material and earthly concerns that surround your life. Possessions, wealth, prosperity, it's a larger, more loaded term. And Jesus says, you serve God, your two masters can be God or the material things that surround your life, your time, your money, your attention. And what will it be? How will you give your devotion? Jesus makes it plain. There's no prioritization here. There's just a priority, one singular priority. I think it's funny, you know, you hear this actually in a lot of ministry circles. Pastors try to make sense of their ministry, and they say things like, my priorities are God, my family, and then my ministry. And, you know, people outside of the, the, the ministry say, my priorities are God, my family, and my work. But the problem is we spend more time at work than with our families. So how do you do that? we're, We're set up for failure in America. You see, that's where I think that formula is actually rather unhelpful. And pastorally, I would encourage you to this. God is your priority and he permeates all of your life. Stop stressing about trying to do one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Because you know what? The older you get, the more priorities heap upon you, right? Your kids, your obligation to your work increases, your career increases, all this stuff. All of a sudden, you have a list of 25 priorities, and you're constantly rearranging them. Jesus is saying, solely devote. Give singular devotion to God. 
not the material things that surround your life, and allow that devotion to permeate all of your life. Allow that devotion to leak into everything that you do. Allow the singular devotion to Jesus to reorient all your other decisions. Let me put it a number of different ways, even though I just did. I just want to give you an emphatic point here. The decision to follow Jesus, the master, informs all other decisions. The decision to follow Jesus as master is to claim that nothing else has mastery over us. The confession, quote, Jesus is Lord, is the same confession as nothing else is. Not money, not possessions that will wear out, not the absurd idea we have in America of a career. All of these things to a Christian come after a fierce devotion to God. One of the first times I learned this, I was 18 and at a point in American life where a lot of anxiety hits you. You go to college. And everyone, when you go to college, starts obsessing over what you're going to do with their life because they're bored with theirs. And they're like, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? What are you going to major in? What are all this stuff? Somebody, it took you a while to get some of that. Some, some of you. Um, and I was at Seattle Pacific University. I was in, Seat- in Seattle. My wife and I were dating at the time. And I was starting to follow Jesus. But it's that time in my life where the treasures were wide open, right? I was in one of, a, one, of, one, of, one of the few places you get to in this world. We are so fortunate and lucky. Some of us get to a position I was in where I could have done a lot of things. But that brought a lot of anxiety because privilege breeds anxiety and all these levels of life, right? And I was like, what do I want to do? Where do I want to go? What kind of person do I want to be? No matter what, around that age, whether you're in college or not, it does breed up a level of anxiety. And between end of high school and early college, I'd started figuring out what it meant to be a Christian. I had been converted when I was like 14 or 15 and baptized, and I was like, now I think I know what it is to follow Jesus, right? It means following him, total devotion to him. He's my master, right? All this stuff. But how did it work? Starting to like wonder, will I be the kind of person who's as devoted to Jesus? I saw these older people in my life that were so devoted to Jesus. And I was like, is that going to be me one day? I hope, man, that'd be cool if I could have that level of devotion. And it was through that first year of college, a level of suffering that clarified my vision of the world. Divorce and death and betrayal was surrounding my life. My parents were getting divorced. There's death, there's betrayal in my life. And it was through that God began calling me into ministry. And I remember really struggling with this question. I want to follow God, but pastors are corny. I don't want to be a pastor, you know? Like, those guys are like on stage and like, no, I don't, like they all, they all look the same to me, you know? (laughs) I don't want to be like that. It was this, it was obviously like pride, right? And like, as God was calling me into that, and suffering was going on in my life, and there was clarity that was happening around me, um, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I was like, I really wanted to just make money. I was a good American. Let's make money. But God was calling me to ministry, which is absolutely to not make money, right? <laughs> my treasure was being revealed. My heart, like, where is my heart going to be, right? What am I going to do? How am I going to make decisions? What will inform my decision-making? That was what was going on. It was right then that I got a call from a church in Oregon that was like, hey, do you want to come intern with us for the summer? 
And I hung up the phone. My wife, who I was dating at the time, Allie, I hung up, and she was in Seattle, and she goes, look, the first thing she said, she says, you got to go. You got to leave Seattle. I know that will mean like long distance, Seattle, Portland, or whatever, but you got to go. This is what you were made to do. This is what God's calling you to do. Out of singular devotion to Jesus, this is what needs to happen. And making this decision, I was shocked at how much peace I had. Why? Because something started to operate in my life when I was 18, which was that a singular devotion to Jesus, when a decision is made out of that singular devotion of Jesus and within community, my wife and I, or you and a roommate or your community group, when decisions are made out of a singular devotion to Jesus and surrounded by the wisdom of community, there's tremendous peace that comes. And all of a sudden, I began to see how life with Allie might work really well. <laughs> because if she's going to always encourage my singular devotion to Jesus, I have to always encourage her singular devotion to Jesus, and decisions must be made out of the first decision we made, which is to follow God. Now, I understand this analogy kind of is dumb because it's ministry, and I know a lot of you, that's not your life. And at some level, you're like, well, it's pretty clean because it's ministry. But I got to tell you, since that day, Allie and I have had to use that same idea over and over again. I told you my wife's in medicine when we had to choose medical school and moving here for residency and all of these things. How did we make those decisions? And I look back and I go, there was actually little anxiety in some of those decisions. Some of the better decisions I've made have had the least amount of anxiety. Why? Because I wasn't looking at how am I going to make money or how am I going to contribute my time to my, our careers or any absurd idea like that? Our attention and gaze was fixed towards Jesus and the decision followed. Because at some level, when you are singularly devoted to Jesus, there's no wrong decisions. Isn't that freeing? When you make your decision with God in partnership with him, man, you can kind of do whatever. Because it'll keep you out of sin, it'll keep you out of foolishness, it'll keep you on the straight and narrow path, and you'll find yourself being with God in the decision. And not with money and the stress of earthly concerns. No, all of those things go away, which is why Dallas Willard can write this. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life is to learn how to, fo- how to do what Jesus said to do. That's the most important thing. A disciple is not a person who has things under control. Americans love to have things under control. We'll talk about that next week. Or knows a lot of things. Christians love to know things, and then that de- like demonstrates their righteousness. No, that's not what a disciple is. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. I'm reading it again. Disciples are simply people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. So I'm telling you, my wife and I have not done this perfectly. I have not done this perfectly. I'm just telling you the best moments of my life when I feel like I am with God and connected with him, it's because I'm obeying the command of Jesus to not store up treasures on earth, but laying up treasures in heaven and making decisions off of one decision. I follow Jesus. And from that decision is a cascade of other decisions that are made. But they're all made out of my singular devotion to Jesus. So we don't serve money. We don't serve possessions. We don't serve our future. We don't serve our career. We don't serve our kids' potential future. We don't serve anything else but God alone. 
And when we serve God, the tremendous peace of God is given to his followers and his people to where you can now live a life free of anxiety, free of yourself, free of interior motivations. And I know that for some of you, the word anxiety brings up clinical ideas and and things that you have struggled with. And yes, sometimes it involves a level of participation with professionals and counseling and medicine, but I'm here to tell you that God is here to help you in your anxiety. God has not left you alone. God has not left you on your own. God has not left you unconcerned with anxiety or unsure how this whole world thing works. He has stepped in as Jesus and showed his devotion to you, which is why we see Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Look at that verse. Leave that verse up there. We throw aside every weight. Money's a weight. We throw aside career. Career's a weight. We throw aside our ridiculous ambitions. We throw them and we lay them aside and we fix our eyes on Jesus because he has devoted to us. We have singular devotion to God because God has singular devotion to you. Look at this verse closely. It says that Jesus endured the cross, how? Through the joy that was set before him. Commentators look at that verse and they were puzzled for centuries. They go, what does it mean that the joy was set before him? And suddenly, as you start to read and study this passage, you realize that wise people have interpreted this to mean this. What was the joy set before him? It was you. The purchase of a people, the partnership with his creation. He had the joy set before him, so he endured the cross. You and I now have this joy set before us, and we get to endure anything. We get to move forward and lay aside every weight because our eyes are fixed on Jesus. And this is precisely what these waters are about this morning. Don't miss the connection between baptism and laying up and storing up treasures in heaven. What we are about to do is watch people demonstrate their singular devotion to Jesus. This will define the rest of their life. This will define all of who they are. They will go down with sin, buried in transgressions, and raised to new life, storing up heavenly treasures because Jesus died for us. He singularly devoted himself to us. He endured the cross, and for the joy that was set before him, He endured it all. And so we now get to celebrate with people who go under in sin and up to new life because of their singular devotion to Jesus. These waters will define the rest of the decisions they make. And for you this morning, Christian, I believe some of you have forgotten your baptism. And you need to stare and fix your eyes and gaze upon what Jesus does, which is put dead things down and raise new things to life. That is what we're here to celebrate, and that is what you are here to put your attention on is that we are going to participate in people storing up heavenly treasures, which makes us be able to sing the old hymn, I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. The cross before me, the world behind me, no turning back, no turning back. Let's pray. Jesus, you are with us. You have devoted to us. You have shown us your goodness And Father, I pray that as these people devote themselves fully to you, God, that you would speak your devotion to this congregation as we watch this.
that your word would carry forward and that the cares of this world would go strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.